This is Wednesday's Women, hosted by Caitlin and Taylor. We invite you to join us in a candid conversation about the roles of women in political organizing and beyond as we celebrate the centennial celebration of the 19th Amendment. We hope that you find this episode educational, entertaining, and the women we discuss inspiring. If you like what you hear, subscribe and share. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Wednesday's Women. Now, we know that we had promised you Phyllis Schlafly last week, but there has been a little bit of a change. So we will be covering Phyllis Schlafly, but we will be covering her next week. Um, so not sure if you're aware or not, but if you're not, you're about to be. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, has passed. And so when we're filming this, it is the day after she was lying in, she is lying in state. Um, it's the day after they moved her from the Supreme Court to the Capitol building. So um, we thought that it would be okay to just shift our schedule so we could cover um, what we truly see as an icon and such a huge feminist, especially for her time and facing all the challenges she did. Um, we're going to cover Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg this week. We will cover Phyllis Schlafly next week, but we are going to cover her time on different U.S. courts um, and the lasting legacy she will have on this country. Yeah. Yeah, and she lived an incredible life, and that's why it's so important we continue, even though that she's no longer with us, to speak about the work she did and continue the work she did. So, Joan Ruth Bader was born on March 15, 1933. She was born in New York, and her father was a Jewish immigrant from Odessa, Ukraine, at the time um, part of the Russian Empire, and her mom was born in New York, parents who came from Poland. So, both knew... Um, what it was like to be an immigrant or um, descendants of immigrants. Um, as you might have realized from my first remark, her first name is Joan. However, whenever she first started attending school, um, her mom recognized that there were other girls named Joan in her class, and she was like, mm, I don't want you to be confused with anybody, so we're going to just make your first name Ruth. Do you think Joan was like the Emily of the time? Like, I knew like seven Emilys in grade school. Oh, yeah, or, like, Sarah or Sierra. Yeah. yeah, do you think, like, Joan was just the name of the time? It was the name of her class, apparently. <laughs> enough, for her mom to be like, enough for her mom to be like, uh, you know how I named you this? That was a mistake on my part. My bad. This is your new name. Happy birthday. She struggled with a lot of things throughout her young life. Her one sister passed away really young from malaria. Um... Her mom dealt with cancer throughout her high school years and actually died the day before Ruth's high school graduation. However, she also had a lot of happy memories uh, that really did influence like her character and the way that she lived her life outside of the courtroom. So for those of you that watched parts of her um, funeral, you'll know that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was Jewish. And she started at a summer camp from the age of four 
which was called Camp Chinawa, and it's a Jewish summer camp at Lake Balfour near Minerva, New York, and she was actually later a camp counselor there until the age of 18. Her family was typically not very religious. However, she did find some comfort in her Jewish faith. So her mom actually took an active role in her education, which included taking her to the library often. Um, her mom had actually also been a very good student in her youth, graduating from high school at the age of 15. However, um, at the time, she was unable to further her own education because her family chose to send her brother to college instead of her, which is really sad, but also very inspiring that she got to see the amazing like legacy of her daughter. Well, she didn't get to see it, but she was able to influence what would be the wonderful legacy of her daughter. Um, she wanted, as we saw, her to get more education so um she was hoping that by getting her more educated she thought maybe that ruth would become a high school history teacher which i just think is funny because you're on the right path but you're very far from where you need to landmark but for the fact that it was a daughter i can understand like at the time it was unheard of so it's hard to imagine what you can't picture in high school ruth attended james madison high school um, whose law program later dedicated a courtroom in her honor, which I thought was really neat. Her mom ended up dying, like we said, right before her high school graduation, so she never got to see the rest of her life in person. But I think based on what she did, she would be very proud of her accomplishments. What is so sad about that to me is Ruth was valedictorian of her class in high school. She graduated top of the class, and didn't attend graduation because her mother had passed. Yeah. I'm like, that's so sad because like, it should have been such a happy thing to carry on her mom's legacy as top of the class. I think that's a huge thing. And then she had to miss it, like obviously within good reason. If like if a family member of mine died the day before graduation, I'd be like, I'm not going to graduation. It's still sad. Absolutely. Following her graduation, she decided she was going to attend undergrad to pursue a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Law. And I think law. Law or government? Uh, her bachelor's was government, I think, which is basically, like, law, but you're not in law school yet. <laughs> um, but she did that at Cornell University, and that is also where she met her husband, Martin Ginsburg, who was studying law as well. Um, and if you ever watch any of the online, or not online, but like the movies of, and portrayals of them, uh, which Taylor and I will talk about further on in this podcast, it's really nice to see, and I think it represented them well. They always did seem to have a very good relationship, a very uh, equal relationship, which also was very weird at the time because typically men were seen to be that superior to the wife and the head of the household and they were more equal partners and she said that one of the reasons she loved martin and she always referred to him as marty so much is he was the first man she met who fell in love with her brains and not her beauty which was a very humble brag because she was like stunning when she was growing up oh yeah but it is like their relationship was always interesting because he treated her so equally. And people were like, well, he's obviously more successful. And he was like, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> well, especially at the beginning, he was. 
was. Not to get ahead, but especially at the beginning, he had a lot easier of a time trying to um, pursue law. But while they were in college, she was actually a member of the Phi Beta Kappa and the highest ranking female student in her graduating class, which is great because she was valedictorian of her high school, highest female graduating student in Cornell, which is an Ivy League school. So mm -hmm. a month after graduation, they got married and they moved to Oklahoma. So they waited no time. Um, at this time, whenever they moved to Oklahoma, Ruth was actually working in the Social Security office and her husband was serving um, as an active duty member of the U.S. Army. And then in 1956, she decided it was time for her to pursue her, yeah, master's degree, her law degree. Yeah, it's considered I, a... I don't know, well, I don't know how the degrees work for this, since, like, law school is very different than, yeah. The only reason it matters is there's actually a master's of law, but you're not a practicing attorney if you receive your master's of law. Um... You receive, it's called a Juris Doctor, and that's like your law degree, and then you take your bar exam, um, and it's just considered a tertiary degree, so like you don't get a doctor of law to practice as an attorney, you just get your JD. Okay. Well, that's what she was going to Harvard Law for, which is very important because Harvard's like top of the top. However, it's really important to note at, in 1956, she was only nine one of nine women in a class of about 500 men. And there is a very famous story that's highlighted in some of the movies we're gonna talk about, which is where the dean of her college requested that these nine women come to a dinner party with him. And she attended said dinner party and they were placed around this table. And the first thing he said to this, at this dinner party was like, welcome to the dinner party. I have a question I want to ask each of you. As women, why were you allowed to take a seat away from a man? I'm paraphrasing, but yeah. that's it. Supposedly, um, Justice Ginsburg's response was she wanted to better understand the struggles her husband went through. And so she was enrolling in law school because he was in law school. Obviously, that wasn't why she did it. It was more just to make him feel like an ass <laughs> essentially too some people have speculated too that she didn't want to appear she didn't know where this was gonna go because you usually would want the backing of your dean especially as a first year because law school is four years correct three three and so there are some speculation if she was trying to do it and i mean i think probably my opinion is that she did it with a tied reason of trying to be like to be a show off to him to be like that's so far from where you should be talking to people like that but also trying to like save herself in case anyone ever said that she was being rude to him to be like no I'm just doing the thing but um she started there in 1956, and at the time, um, her husband had taken a job in New York City, and so Ginsburg transferred to Columbia Law School and became the first woman to be on two major law reviews, which would be the Harvard Law Review and the Columbia Law Review. And then in 1959, she earned her law degree at Columbia and tied for first in her class. So post-graduating, she had very 
very difficult time um, landing employment because she was a woman. Her husband at the time, and based on what I saw from different interviews in the media, she, especially at that time, recalled having, like, not jealousy, but it was very disheartening that they were at the same stages in their life, and he was having so much easier of a time landing positions, even though she was really the more astonishing of the two academically. Like, they were both very good lawyers. Would you say? He was better than him. <laughs> yes, he was better than him. They're both really good lawyers, not to knock him. Just saying, she was better than him on paper, for sure. The only thing is, is that she was a woman. Um, and she was actually turned away from multiple positions. One position that I wanted to talk about was um, a Columbia law professor, Gerald Gunther, Gunther um, actually pushed for Judge Edmund L. Palmieri, I think that's how you say it, Palmieri. Um, of the U.S. District Court of the Southern District of New York to hire her as a law clerk, threatening to never recommend another Columbia student to him if he did not give Ginsburg the opportunity and guaranteeing to provide the judge with a replacement clerk should Ginsburg not succeed. Um, and later that year, he followed through with the recommendation and Ginsburg began as um, began her clerkship for the judge and she held the position for two years. So obviously showing that she wasn't just there to be I guess, a waste of his time, essentially, despite he should have known that just based on her um, resume, but that's how it was for her at the early stages. She had to fight so hard to be able to be given positions that she did get. I also think women at the time faced a lot of issues because people expected them to eventually have a family, meaning kids right. today. Family could literally be you and your house plans. It's just what you consider your support system. Right. At the time, family was very much so two kids, picket fence, all that. And people actually do see pregnant women as a liability. Right. You well, and at, and at, at this time, at this time, she had already had a daughter. Yes. Um, but it's really interesting that you bring up the point about um, women being pregnant and everything. So... Um, from 1961 to 63, she actually did a, re she was a research associate and then an associate director of the Columbia Law School Project, an international procedure, um, in which she learned Swedish to co-author a book with Anders Pozalvis, um, on civil procedure in Sweden. And the reason why it's interesting that Taylor brought up about pregnant women was when she was there, um, she, her beliefs in gender began to go through a great re uh, revolution, basically. She saw how the women there who were practicing law were going about their lives without any being held back. There were women who were judges there. There were more judges in some court houses than men. Um, wait, more female judges. I don't know if I said female or not, but there were more female judges than male judges. And some of the female judges she saw were eight months practicing or eight months pregnant and still practicing. So it's really astonishing the difference at the time between her being so um, decorated in her academics and not being able to get a position based on her gender and then these women who are not only kicking ass in the courtroom, but also becoming moms and having lives at home and not being held back because of anything. So that was a really great 
um, position for her because this made her really see about how gender inequality can affect a person's life. So Ginsburg's first position as a professor was at Rutgers Law School in 1963. Um, the appointment was with, whoa, the appointment was not without its drawbacks as she was informed she would be paid less than her male colleagues because she had a husband with a well-paying job, which is bullshit. You know, we hate to see it. Um, and at the time she actually entered academia, she was one of fewer than 20 female law professors in the United States entirely. Um, she was a law professor in law, mainly civil procedures at Rutgers from 1963 to 72, receiving tenure from the school in 69. Um, and I just wanted to mention, I think it's really interesting about reading about her being paid less than her male colleagues because there's so many instances in today's society where that's still a big issue. Um, I know there are professors at our university who have said that they came before a male professor who had less degrees than she did and she makes less. Like I've heard that from teachers. Um, and I just think it's really disheartening to see that that was an issue back then, but it's still an issue now. And it's still an issue everywhere. Like, people will say the gender pay gap doesn't exist. The only place that gender pay gap doesn't exist is within a union. Because union, you all get paid the same. Whether you're, like, you sign a contract for the same rate. Right. If you are not unionized, your female co-workers are likely making less than you. They just are. And it depends on, you know, also their race. So there is a race pay gap. So I think the last time I saw it, Latina women have the greatest pay disparity from white men, I believe. Or, yeah, white men. Um, that could have changed. And quite frankly, I could be wrong on that as well. But I'm like 99% positive Latina women had the biggest gap. Yeah. No, it's really astonishing that we still have these disparity, despair, what am I trying to say? Disparities. Thank you. It's really disheartening to see that there are still these disparities in the 2020s whenever we've come so far on so many different things. Why couldn't this have been progressed as well? And I think a big thing is just like, it's seen as like improper to discuss your wages. It's not. Straight up, I will ask a coworker, like, what do you make hourly? Like, how do you compare? Well, and it's just, like, sex in the country. Like, it's only a taboo if we decide to make it a taboo, you know? We were taught that asking a person about their political beliefs, asking about their rate or their religion, or asking about their pay is all off the table because it's considered rude. It's only considered rude if we're asking it to do something mean to them. If we have negative um, connotations associated with what we're trying to figure out. If we're doing it just because we want to better understand a person's situation, that's not taboo. It shouldn't be taboo. No. And it's like, I don't know. It's so sad to see the workplace become such a, like, don't speak about your paycheck. Because, like, you should. Because if Caitlin's making, obviously we don't make any money to produce this podcast, but if Caitlin made a hundred thousand a year to produce the podcast and I made seventy five thousand, I'd be like, hey wait. This is but, <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, what the hell? But if we don't ever discuss that, we wouldn't know. And I also think it's big that her bosses just straight up told her. 
yeah. you're making less. My kitten is in the room with me, so all the noise. He's just jumped onto the desk, and so I'm sure he'll disrupt something soon. That's okay. We love macaroni. We do love macaroni, but... Um, continuing on, in 1970, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg co-founded the Women's Rights Law Reporter, which was the first law journal in the U.S. to focus exclusively on women's rights. From 72 to 80, she taught at Columbia Law School, where she became the first tenured woman and co-authored the first law casebook on sex discrimination, which was a new um, and revolutionary title of its time, sex discrimination. Um, she also spent a year as a fellow at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University from 77 to 78. So she was well-versed in law school, and one of the things that was disheartening to her, there's nothing wrong with being a professor. I don't want anyone to hear this and be like, oh, they're bas bashing professors. That's not the case. It's just the idea that if you have your heart set on a career and you don't receive that career, any career you receive in place of it is going to be less than. And so she desperately wanted to be a practicing attorney. And so she was not really happy in any of her professorships. Right. Like she was content. I'm not saying she was mad the whole time, but like she just knew she wanted more. And so she does eventually get in at the American Civil Liberties Union. And in 1972, she co-founded the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU. By 1973, she had taken over as the project's general counsel, which, which meant she was arguing the majority of the cases before a court. Right. Um, this was big because the first couple of cases, she was dismissed a lot just because of her gender, and they felt like a woman couldn't be an adequate um, attorney. I almost said judge because she was a justice and I was like nope not the word so the women's rights project and related ACLU projects participated in over 300 gender discrimination cases by the year 1974 um which is huge so usually do go through a lot of cases at a firm but that isn't the whole firm um that's just their project area which translates to roughly a case every two days over the last two years um so that's pretty big as the director of the aclu's women's rights project she argued six gender discriminations before the supreme court between the years 1973 and 1976. important to note she won five of the six argued which is an incredible <laughs> record to take from the Supreme Court. Yeah. And one of the reasons she was so successful in this field is she had a very strategic method that she went about. So the goal was obviously to dismantle gender discrimination, but she knew that if she went straight at gender discrimination and just said, we have to get rid of it, all the courts would throw it out and be like, no. Like, not that they want gender discrimination, just that there's, like, not a lot a court can do other than say this is constitutional or this is unconstitutional. So instead, she slowly picked apart aspects of gender discrimination, namely discriminatory statutes that allowed businesses and government bodies to sort of discriminate amongst their ranks. And so she slowly would win a success at a case and then build off of that case's precedent. So every time you argue a case, it sets a legal precedent. 
um, good, bad, or none of the above, it sets a precedent and you can then build off of that precedent. So that was her strategy for the entire length of the project. She was also very meticulous in her plaintiffs. So she didn't take everyone on. She would only take the cases she could win for a couple of reasons. One, if she loses a case, that case will then set legal precedent and she knew she didn't want that legal precedent on the floor. Um, two, you typically don't want to argue a case you can't win. <laughs> Just like attorney standpoint, you know, you're not, you're not going to want to play on a football team that never wins a game or, you know, go to a hospital and work if the hospital's known for people dying on the surgical bed. Like, you're not trying to end your career. <laughs> so, um, one thing that she did that really shocked people and people still talk about today is that she would take on male clients periodically to prove that gender discrimination didn't only affect women. And a big reason she did this was because justices were men and they were more sympathetic to men. And so she would say, you know, you proved in this case that you can't discriminate against a spouse's um, social security benefits based on their gender, so you can't discriminate against a woman either. Um, she was so meticulous in how she brought these cases forward, she even took special choice to the words she used. Her secretary once noted to her that sex would distract the judges if a woman was constantly saying the word sex to them, which is gross, you're a judge. Yeah. But I digress. So she switched all of the language in her case briefs to sex, from sex to gender. Um, this is big to note because back then they were typing case briefs on typewriters and there was no command F and then change. <laughs> so they were going through and retyping all these briefs. Um, she also wrote a couple amicus briefs during this time. So she volunteered to write the brief for Reed versus Reed in 1971. This case the Supreme Court extended the protections of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to women. So that was a really big deal. Um, by 1971, the 14th Amendment had applied to men for a significant period of time, um, but that was not the case for women. And so to now um, have this precedent that they are protected under the 14th Amendment was huge. In 1972, she argued in Moritz versus Commissioner on behalf of a, ma a man who had been denied a caregiver deduction because of his gender. Um, if you have seen On the Basis of Sex, yeah. she does meet with this man in the movie. Um, the caregiver deduction is basically you saying, I take care of my spouse or of my mother or of someone and it is a deduction you claim on your taxes. Um, it, also helps, it also helps, too, just because a lot of the people that um, are considered caregivers and apply for the caregiver deduction typically do not work. Yes. So. That, that is a big deal. Um, the case was argued that if you're denying men um, this caregiver deduction, you're essentially making it incredibly difficult for people to have caregivers. So if um, I got married and was an orphan and then 
I became severely disabled and needed my husband to take care of me, it would cause a huge issue if he couldn't afford a caregiver to come into the home because he also couldn't afford to take care of me. So, Also with this case, with Mortis versus Commissioner, Mortis was taking care of his mother and his mother only had him. Like, he had no siblings. So it really helped because in the original um, part of that like where it said in the original like legislation or original documents about what this um, caregiver deduction would be done for, it specifically says for women. And, you know, that really makes it hard for it. I'm sure it made it hard for a lot of men prior to him with that, that change. Because I mean, I know we always talk about ways that like, for example, the bill of rights and um, like different parts of our, amendments say about how it's like specifically for men or specifically for um white men you know like even though it says only men it says men it implies it'd be only white men because otherwise we wouldn't have um amendments following it to ensure that certain people are included in original documents so it's not even that kind of a situation with this case it was it literally said women Yeah, they were just straight up, like, (laughs) we're not even going to front anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Which isn't okay. So we've talked about third and fourth wave feminism fights for rights for everyone. This includes men's rights in some areas. Obviously, we sometimes prioritize women's rights over men's rights in certain areas. So men already had the right to vote, so we didn't really need to fight for their right to vote. But there are cases in which men do need help, and so this was one of them. Um, A current day equivalent would be trying to get men to be more open about emotional trauma and sexual assault. They typically tend to hide that, and one thing later feminism argues for is you need to be open, you need to, you know, fix yourself if you have emotional trauma, go to counseling, there's nothing wrong with therapy, and with sexual assault, men should report it. It shouldn't just be something that is like, oh, you should have enjoyed it, whatever, like, you know, men should be treated equally to women, it's just typically women have to fight to be treated equally. And it's important to note we still aren't there with quality for them either, because one thing I always like to bring up, if you ever go into a men's bathroom, very, 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 very rarely will you see a changing table, And if you saw, I think it was in 2015, there was that famous picture of the guy who was doing a, oh, what's it called when you're leaning against the wall? Wall squat? squat? Yeah, he was doing a squat and had his baby resting. Like, he had to make his legs out to be a table. So that way he could change his child, not having them be on the dirty bathroom floor because there was no changing table in the bathroom. And yet there was in the women's restroom. I just don't, just put a changing table in a men's restroom. How much can it possibly cost? I mean, obviously, like, it's the women's, it's the women's problem. It's unthinkable that a father, because that's the other thing. Um, (laughs) Well, and I don't mean to, like, get us off topic from this, but that's an important conversation of, uh, like, superhero dads, like, dads that do everything, that go to work, and they're also really good dads at home there's no term for that for moms. If you do everything, that means you're negligent. 
to your children, that you're not spending enough time with your children. You're prioritizing your job over your children. You're missing out on your children's growing up. But with men, they aren't, if they don't have that job or, you know, whatever, they're seen as, you know, deadbeat dads or they're not living up to the expectations they need to be. It's a fair point. And we are still fighting for equality for everyone. So you may have privilege in one area and lack privilege in another area. Um, And Justice Ginsburg fought for equality almost her entire life. I'm just going to say almost because she wasn't like officially fighting for it in high school. But most of her life. (laughs) Um, She also filed an amicus brief, which amicus brief is Amicus briefs are literally like briefs from friends of the court, um, which is a really weird way to say like, this person has an invested or has a vested interest in how this case turns out. And so they're filing a brief to help persuade the court to file in their favor. Um, And she wrote several Amicus briefs in, oh God. Frontiero versus Richardson, so sorry if I butchered that, butchered that, (laughs) Um, which was argued in 1973. She challenged a statute making it more difficult for a female service member to claim an increased housing allowance for her husband than for a male service member seeking the same allowance. So what that means is if you're in the military and um, you're separated from your family, you can have like, your family will receive a little bit of money, sort of, to compensate your, like, job. Um, And so women who served, in the 70s, they could serve. If they were serving, their families received a smaller allowance than families who had men serving. Um, And the reason behind this is they felt like the men should also have a job, whereas the women of male service members wouldn't have a job. They would just be taking care of the family. And so Ginsburg argued that the statute treated women as inferior, implying that they couldn't, you know, they couldn't receive jobs, they couldn't maintain um, the same pay that a man would. And so the Supreme Court ruled 8-1 in Frontiero, who was the female service member's favor. Um, 8-1 decisions are pretty big unless it's like a blatant case, and at the time, this wasn't necessarily a blatant case, so an 8-1 decision is a pretty big deal. Um, the court again ruled in Ginsburg's favor in Weinberger versus Weisenfield in 1975, where Ginsburg represented a widower, denied survivor benefits under Social Security, which permitted widows, but not widowers, to collect special benefits while caring for minor children. Um, And she argued that this statute discriminated against male survivors of workers by denying them the same protection as their female counterparts. So, um, again, that was ruled in her favor that you could not offer men um, less as allowance or stipends or whatever you want to call it. They have to be offered the same as women. Ginsburg later filed an amicus brief and sat with counsel at oral argument for Craig versus Boren in 1976, which challenged 
an Oklahoma statute, so this was just a state statute, not a federal statute, that set different minimum drinking ages for men and women. <laughs> every con law class, every civil rights class, every legal class I've ever had discusses how the drinking ages change. Um, and so what some states would do is men's drinking age was actually higher than women's drinking age because they felt women were more responsible and would guide the men to be responsible. Um, if you don't know, drinking ages were all set to 21 federally because there were a lot of accidents on state's borders because kids, like if Pennsylvania's drinking limit was 21 and West Virginia's drinking limit was 18, um, you would just hop the line and drink and then try to go home because obviously you're in another state now and they would cause accidents. And so what the government said was, um, if you want to receive highway funding from federal offices, you'll raise your drinking age to 21. Um, and some states held out for like a real long time. But another issue states had was that they had different drinking ages and that is also an issue. This case was the first time the court imposed what is known as an intermediate scrutiny on laws, discriminating based, discriminating based on gender. Um, and so that's just a heightened, a heightened standard of constitutional review. Um, so that was huge, and that was in part because so many gender discrimination cases, cases were coming through. So her last case as an attorney before the Supreme Court was in 1978. Um, it was Duran versus Missouri, which challenged the validity of voluntary jury duty for women on the ground that participation in jury duty was a citizen's vital governmental, was a citizen's vital governmental service and therefore should not be optional for women. Um, up until this point, women were not required to serve on jury duty. Um, one, women hadn't been sitting on juries all that long. <laughs> Two, it was seen as like a real hassle to not have anyone watch her kids. And, you know, you had better things to do. We weren't gonna call the women in. Um, at this time, women could volunteer for jury duty but it was not required. So now you basically just get a slip in the mail that's like, hey, be here. You won. <laughs> be here at this time and place. Um, and that doesn't guarantee you sit on the jury. So for example, if you show up and you have a conflict of interest or just the prosecution or defense doesn't like you, you could be sent home. Um, but everyone does have to serve jury duty. There are limited exceptions. If you're the sole breadwinner, you can still get out of it. Um, college students have a four-year hold on their jury duty calls. Um, just because, like, if you live in Florida and attend school in Pennsylvania, you're not coming home for jury duty. <laughs> you're just not. Um, and there are a couple other reasons you can get exemptions. At this time, you didn't need an exemption. You just said, I'm a girl. I'm not coming. And so Ginsburg ended her oral argument, and at the time he was Associate Justice, William Rehnquist, asked Ginsburg, you won't settle for putting Susan B. Anthony on the new dollar then? Um, interesting that we're still discussing putting Susan B. Anthony on money. 
but this was um, a statement that, I'm trying to think of a nice way to put this. Essentially, he was saying, so we can't just placate you and get your silence. And Ginsburg said she wanted to respond, we won't settle for tokens, um, but instead opted to not answer the question. Obviously, you don't want to piss the court off who's deciding your fate. Um, so she did withhold, but that is just to show you the sort of attitude she had to deal with of you won't just settle for this. Um, legal scholars and advocates still credit Ginsburg's body of work with making significant legal advances for women, um, mostly under the Equal Protections Clause of the Constitution. So without that first case, um, a lot of this would have been incredibly difficult. And taken together, Ginsburg's legal victories discourage legislators from treating women and men differently under the law. You don't want to write legislation that is just going to get kicked to the court and then kicked back to you to be told it's unconstitutional. Um, do people still do it? Yes, but it doesn't happen nearly as often as it would without a court in place. She continued to work on the ACLU's Women's Rights Project until her appointment to the federal bench in 1980. Um, towards the end of her tenure there, she was a little more withdrawn from the project, so she wasn't the first one advocating um, or serving as counsel. Obviously, she was looking for another job. <laughs> um, so then she went on uh, and did some work um, through the U.S. Court of Appeals. Um, Taylor, I need to know, is it omnibus or omnius? Omnibus. No, omnibus. Gotcha. Good. Good. Good deal. Cut that out if you would for me, pal. I will. <laughs> so the Congress passed the Omnibus Judgeship Act of 1978, which increased the number of federal judges by 117 in district courts and another 35 to be added to the circuit courts. Um, so the law placed an emphasis on ensuring that the judges included women and minority groups, a matter that was important to President Jimmy Carter, who had been elected two years ago. Um, Jimmy Carter, that's one thing is he would focus and try to focus on including more women and men or women and people of minorities in places in higher government. So um, at the time, it actually occurred very uh, luckily for Ginsburg because she was considering a change in career as soon as he was elected. Um, so she was interviewed by the Department of Justice to become a Solicitor General and the position she really did want, she applied for it and she really did want it. However, she was very afraid and knew that she and the other person who happened to be African-American um, had very little chance of being appointed by the Attorney General, who at the time was Griffin Bell. Um, in January 1979, she ended up um, applying through a questionnaire that she did for possible nominees to be um, on the Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit and another for the District of Columbia Circuit, and she was nominated by the President on April 14, 1980 to be placed um, in the seat on the D.C. Circuit Appeals Court, which was vacated by Judge Harold Leventhal upon his death. Um, and she was confirmed to this position on June 18, 1980, and she received her commission later that day. So during her time as a judge on the D.C. Circuit, she often found uh, consensus with her colleagues, including conservators Robert H. Borg and Antonian Scalia, um, which we'll talk about more as we go forward with this, about her relationship with Scalia. Um, 
Her time on the court earned her a reputation as a cautious jurist and a moderate. Her service ended on August 9, 1993, due to her elevation to the United States Supreme Court, and she was replaced by Judge David S. Tatale. Fun fact that I'm, again, 99% sure is true. <laughs> I'm almost positive it was Robert H. Bort. A, he, he was supposed to be elevated to the Supreme Court and, like, really messed up in the um, confirmation process through the Senate. And so I believe it was Bork who liked to smoke marijuana in law school, which isn't that big of an issue. The issue is that once he was a law professor, he often smoked it with his students. And so <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was Robert Bork. I feel like I've heard this story in law class. And so what happened was like his, he was obliterated in the confirmation process. And so now if you have like a horrible confirmation process um, and end up not getting put in, it's called getting borked. Like yeah. it was so bad, it, it coined a whole new term. I just looked up um, bork and pot and it came up facial hair, pot and video rentals, the strange details on earth when vetting Supreme Court nominees. So. I would say, yeah, your, your 99% is on the money. Thanks, bud. <laughs> so it's just something to always remember. So obviously, Scalia does eventually get elevated to the Supreme Court, and they did attempt to elevate Robert Bork, um, but he got borked, which can still happen to you today. So, um, hey, I just wanted to include, too, before we go on, I'm on the Washington Post. Um, and I did want to include with that fun fact. So this is a quote. The leadership conference had staffers working around the clock for four months in the summer and early fall of 1987. A task force ultimately complied what they referred to as the Book of Bork, a lengthy collection and analysis of Bork's judicial record that they even shared with every senator. They pushed hard to frame Bork's judicial philosophy as a threat to equal and reproductive rights. Um, he was Bork, whose confirmation was rejected by the Senate, was scrutinized for everything from his facial hair in one hearing by Senator Howell Helflin, who asked Bork whether he would like to offer an explanation relative to the beard, um, to his choice of video rentals, a then reporter for the Washington City paper obtained a copy of Bork's rentals from the Washington Video Store, which prompted Congress to pass the Video Privacy Protection Act in 1988. But yeah, so, yeah. Can you get can you get porn from a video store? I'm, like, is that the video rentals that they were, like, look at what this man's renting? I think at the time, people could do that. Like, I think there were, yeah. remember, if you're, for those of you that know anything about central Pennsylvania, if you're going, um, wait, west, Pennsylvania, Clarion's in the west, so if you're going west on 80, going towards Clarion from central Pennsylvania, uh, if you're going towards Dubois, Pennsylvania, there used to be a sign for a adult video rental shop, like a billboard on interstate. It no longer exists now. It was taken down, but it was there for like 15 years or so. Do people still rent videos on this day and age? Like, I would say no, 
I would say no. I think that's probably another reason why within the last like five years that got taken down was the fact that streaming is now the the great new way to get any source of media. So I'm just trying to think like how you would say like their video, like, are you going to come out and be like, this man rented the Goonies for four weeks in a row and like get him kicked off the Supreme Court for that? No. You come forward and you're like, this dude rented the same porno for a month. Like, People might be like, um, no, not him. <laughs> so just curiosity on my part, I guess. Fun fact, the town I live in, New Wilmington, there's New Wilmington, Pulaski, and then New Bedford, and right on the other side of New Bedford, um, it, it's in Pennsylvania, but it's like real close to the Ohio line. It's an adult shop. And over quarantine, like towards the end of quarantine, when they were lifting restrictions on retailers, the Pulaski police had to put out a statement to please quit reporting them for being open. They're a retailer and they are allowed to conduct business so long as they follow social distancing policy. And it is, it caused a huge, like, issue. People were like, oh my god, why is it allowed to open at all? And I'm like, just don't go there. It's so bad that if you go there, you have to back in so that people can't read your license plate. <gasps> I'm like, why? But I also wonder how they, like, survive in the age of Amazon, in which case no one would know what you're ordering. Very so good. Now, <laughs> now that we've discussed porn and sex shops, um, back to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, who was not borked. On June 22nd, 1993, President Bill Clinton nominated Ruth Bader Ginsburg to fill Byron White's seat. Um, as Caitlin said, Ginsburg was actually seen as moderate for, at the time of her nomination, they felt like she was a nice middle of the road. Um, some people still see her as fairly moderate today. Um, I would disagree. I would say she went pretty liberal pretty quick. That's not the first time nor the last time this has ever happened. Um, and so there's a political cartoon out there of the first George Bush winding up a wind-up doll and setting it down and it goes and then immediately veers, I think it veers left in the cartoon. And so when his son gets to appoint a nomination, he goes, make sure you like know who you're picking so this doesn't happen to you. Well, um, so it is and two, I think it's important to note that while she was considered moderate at the time, I think our political spectrum was very different then than it is like today. So, um, for example, everyone says about how, and please don't take this as one way or the other, this is just what comes to my mind, like, uh, Biden, people say about how he's so left, he is very much center. He is very, very much center. Um, where we believe left to be is very much center in most people. There's, like, a whole another left people forget about. Oh, yeah. In fact, it's a common joke that if you go far enough left, you get your guns back. Because you get to, like, extreme leftism where they're, like, everyone should be armed and manage themselves. Which is, like, wild and no one really gets to that point without, like, a huge rebellion. Right. Um, but it's just, like, Left goes on for quite a ways, and if Biden was as left as people thought he would, younger people would like him a lot more. Very <laughs> like, cool. 
<laughs> he is incredibly center. And we're not, like, pushing Biden or anything. It's just, like, a common example of, like, and I think that's why Ruth Bader Ginsburg was seen, like, I think, definitely, I agree with you, she did um, become more liberal as time went, but for her to be considered not moderate, like, I don't think she's left, but I don't think she's that far from the center. She's, like, very much, like, left from center, but not, like, even middle of that left spectrum, I would say. Yeah, it's definitely, like, I mean, there's a whole political compass that you can, like, take a test and find out what you are, um, and it does work a little better than a spectrum, because there are other things to consider, um, but yeah, she definitely, I wouldn't call her a moderate, because moderate typically means, like, you're pretty center, um, I would call her a liberal, yeah. a liberal justice, um, obviously, at the point of her um, nomination she wasn't and moderates tend to do better in the court because you know both sides are kind of willing to say you know this is a moderate person we don't really have to worry that much about our side um during her testimony before the united states supreme during her testimony before the united states senate committee on the judiciary as part of the confirmation hearings Ginsburg refused to answer questions about her view on the constitutionality of some issues, such as the death penalty, as it was an issue she might have to vote on if it came before the court. Um, this isn't to say that Ginsburg just shied away from all controversial I issues. She did um, speak about some of them. She just felt she shouldn't speak on how she would vote before hearing the case. So, at the time, whenever those questions were asked of her, did she just plead the fifth, or what did she say? I, ref I, would, I would, I would refuse to answer on such and such ground. Um, I'm not exactly sure what she said. I would imagine she just said, she likely just said, I'm not comfortable answering questions on an issue which might need to be immediately decided by the court. Gotcha. Um, so, death penalty has been, like, a big thing, especially because there, <laughs> the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, um, the pursuit of life <laughs> is right there. <laughs> um, and so the death penalty has been, you know, the constitutionality of it has been discussed forever. <laughs> um, so that kind of makes sense that she wouldn't discuss it. You wouldn't want to discuss, you wouldn't want to imply that you have a certain way or belief about something you're about to hear in court without hearing case facts. Um, she did handle other controversial questions. So, um, for example, sorry, Mac, <laughs> but <laughs> for example, she affirmed her belief in a constitutional right to privacy and explained at some length her personal judicial philosophy and thoughts regarding gender equality. Um, right to privacy was pretty big at this time, I believe. There were a lot of, um, basically, like, one case I remember hearing about is they took a heat lamp, not a heat lamp, they took a heat sensor to a guy's house and were trying to decide how much heat was being put off to see if he was growing marijuana, and the argument was, like, if you put a heat lamp to people's house, 
you would expose intimate details of their life. And like technically the government's not supposed to have access to intimate intimate details of your life. Right. Um one example was like intimacy within a marriage and I was just like I'm glad that's what you're worried about. <laughs> that you're going to pick up someone on a heat radar. Yeah, well going- Whenever I hear the constitutional right to privacy, especially when we're talking about, like, women in the law, um, it's a very common case where talking about women's right to birth control and can't deny people the right to obtaining birth control because that is a right to privacy between a man and a woman or a person and their partner. That is very true. Also important to note, there was a point in time where um, the wording for those those statutes that tried to outlaw contraceptives just said any contraceptive device which literally includes condoms yeah and so at one point the government was trying to determine if you could buy condoms um so that that is like a huge case that comes up with right to privacy um so marriage counseling um childbirth counseling, things like that, the government should not be involved in. The court has said. Correct. So Ginsburg was more forthright in discussing her views on topics about which she had previously written. Um, Obviously, there's no reason to hide your views on it if it's already out there. So, Leanne. (laughs) The United States Senate confirmed her by a 96 to 3 vote on August 3rd, 1993. She received her commission on August 5th, 1993, and took her judicial oath on August 10th of the same year. While on the Supreme Court, Justice Ginsburg has handed down some landmark decisions. Um, so she authored the court's opinion in United States versus Virginia, 1996, which struck down the Virginia Military Institute's male-only admissions policy as violating the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Um, I had to write a paper so about this. You I wrote a paper about it? About that case I had to for my Women in the Law course. Sir, please. I did think that, that that case specifically is really interesting because, like, we go to Clarion University and uh, we have less uh, women's sporting events, like in sporting things available to them, um, yet we have more women. So, because um, I know part of the, or wait, am I thinking of a different case? Am I combining cases? You're, I think you're combining cases. You're thinking of a Title IX. Because Title so. Um, I, I don't think it was U.S. versus Virginia. No, it was um, I did write a, I did write a report on the U.S. versus Virginia case, though. So, I, with Title, with Title IX, um, a lot of people think of it as, like, sexual assault on campus, and it does deal with that. It also stated that for every male athlete, you had to have an opportunity for a female athlete. Um, which basically meant if you had a men's basketball team, you had to offer a women's basketball team. If zero women sign up for women's basketball, that's not the university's fault. Um, they offered the opportunity. Buddy, stop. They offered the opportunity. Grove City College, which is very close to me, took this to um, 
the Supreme Court, I believe. It was the Supreme Court. And they, it was decided that they can't force private institutions to follow this law. But what they can do is say, if you don't follow Title IX, you don't receive federal funding. And so to this day, Grove City College students do not receive FAFSA or um, any federal aid or grants. So if you go to Grove City, you're shelling out big bucks. They actually have a really good scholarship program there, so you're probably not shelling out big bucks. But no FAFSAs. No FAFSAs to be had there. Um, this was about um, a military institute only allowing men into their program and just outright denying women, which they ruled unconstitutional. Um, Ginsburg dissented, so when you author when you author um, a court opinion, you have the court's opinions, you have concurrence, which is we agree with the decision, so you're either affirming or um, not affirming, basically, a lower court's decision when it's at the Supreme Court. And so the concurrence is like, we agree on the decision to affirm, but we agree for a different reason. And then you have a dissent, which Ginsburg became quite notable for. Um, there's even a book called I Dissent, which is about Ginsburg. Um, and so dissent is like, the court's wrong, and I'm mad that I had to sit here for this decision. Um, and so Ginsburg dissented on Ledbetter versus Goodyear, a case where plaintiff Lily Ledbetter filed a lawsuit against her employer claiming pay discrimination based on her gender under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. In a 5-4 decision, the majority interpreted the statute of limitations as starting to run at the time of every pay period, even if a woman did not know she was being paid less than her male colleague until later. So what this meant is you could file a lawsuit against your employer if you found out in March that he was paying you less solely based on your gender. So what you could do is for that two-week pay period in March, you could file a lawsuit and reclaim what they would consider lost wages. What you cannot do is file for all the paychecks you received from January to March. Because you technically, stop, stop messing with it. You technically didn't file within the statute of limitations. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I love him, but he is testing me. So you didn't file within the statute of limitations, and so you'll never get that money back. Um, that's a huge deal because, as Ginsburg said, um, how would a woman know that they are being paid less if they aren't discussing their paycheck? Like, no one's getting paid less and just not taking it. As soon as you find out you're being paid less, you're going to court. So she felt that was absurd. Um, exciting thing happened. Following the election of President Barack Obama in 2008, the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act mm -hmm. um, was passed. And this act makes it easier for employees to win pay discrimination claims. Um, so not only is this a happy follow-up to what is sometimes a miserable case, but they actually credited Ginsburg with helping to inspire the law being passed. Um, so that's a huge deal. Um, 
Ginsburg consistently supported abortion rights and joined in the court's decision striking down Nebraska's partial birth abortion law in Stenberg versus Carhartt. Um, and so this is important because a lot of people will sometimes say women only support abortion rights because they want to be able to have one or that they want to use it as birth control. Abortion is not fun. Like no matter what kind of abortion you have, no matter how early you are, it's not fun. <laughs> so no one's just like, oh, it's fine. I'll just get an abortion. Like you go through counseling and some states require that you like look at a sonogram before you, like there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. And so sometimes people hear of um, the idea that you can have an abortion through taking two pills which technically you do, it blocks the pregnancy hormone and then it induces contractions. Um, I'm sorry, he's eating an eraser. You, you have to get down. I'm macaroni sorry. just wants all the attention. <laughs> he, I don't know why he's mad. I literally sat in the living room with him for two hours and he didn't want to sit with me, but now he's like, give me your love. He can have it in a little bit. So it's not an easy procedure and no one's using it as their only form of birth control. Um, so it is like a big deal to support abortion rights and it really shouldn't be. So partial birth abortion has always been a huge point of contention, I guess. And Caitlin, correct me if I'm wrong, but a partial birth is like, so D&Es are a form of this, correct? Where you, um, like the fetus is non-viable or is not living, but you still have to deliver it um, because yeah. it is so, grown. So, so, yeah. So basically, and this doesn't just apply with abortions. This is for any pregnancy that doesn't go to term. Um, if your body, if it's to a point where um, for some reason your body's struggling to um, remove it on its own, you can get a DNC, which is whenever they would go in and they would um, manually clean out the uterus. Okay, so this was a huge issue with partial, partial birth abortion laws. Um, it's sometimes misleading and people will talk about like the baby's on its way out and you cut the spinal cord. That's not what no, that's not this true. <laughs> this was about, like, technically it could have been carried or delivered, so you can't abort it. Which, quite frankly, here's my thing. If, like, I get that it could have been carried, but if it's not going to have a life, like, if there is no brain developing, which was an example used in the case, the child's obviously not going to live. We can't live without a brain. Um, so why wouldn't you just terminate the pregnancy? Right. Well, and, and another thing that's also important, because in cases where women have um, pregnancies that are non-viable just on their own, and it, even if you are a woman who is going through a miscarriage, sometimes DNCs are very important in that, because there is such a thing, obviously many people have heard of postpartum hemorrhage, 
Um, and the reason why that occurs is um, your uterus is a muscle like anything else, and it has a lot of vasculature connected to it whenever you have a pregnancy. And so what is supposed to happen is once you have a child, your uterus recontracts and it prevents and blocks the rest of that blood flow so you don't bleed anymore. Um, if you, for some reason, have a pregnancy where pieces of um, material, like if your placental pieces or anything like that are left, um, you'll get what is called a boggy uterus where the uterus is unable to contract and you continue to bleed. So that's another big reason why DNCs are very important as a procedure is that it prevents any kind of hemorrhaging. So an important procedure should not make a law that you can't have it done. My opinion. Ginsburg's opinion as well. So all of this being said, um, on the 40th anniversary of the court's ruling in Roe versus Wade, um, she criticized the decision in Roe as terminating a nascent democratic movement to liberalize abortion laws which might have built a more durable consensus in support of abortion rights. So she's not saying that we should not have abortion rights. She's saying that because the court just overhauled into abortion laws, um, there wasn't really a time to gain a following for abortion rights. There wasn't, um, people felt like they didn't have a say in that decision and so they were upset about it. And that is a valid point. People are still upset with Roe v. Wade and people still say Roe v. Wade was um, basically overstepping on the court's part. I would argue that the laws that were prohibiting abortion would be overstepping on the court's part, but everyone is different. So um, in addition to these cases, she joined the majority for Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt in 2016, which this case struck down parts of a 2013 Texas law regulating abortion providers. Um, Ginsburg also authored a short concurring opinion, which was even more critical of the legislation at issue. She asserted that the legislation was not aimed at protecting women's health, as Texas had implied but rather to impede women's access to abortions. And so um, that's big to kind of call out a state in a decision. Um, I'm not saying it never happens. It's just always like a real big slap in the face to be told you straight up lie to people. Um, so, I mean, I get why Texas is always mad. <laughs> Um, she, she was credited with influencing her colleagues on the case of Safford United School District versus Reading. Um, this case was, um, absurd. I do remember discussing it. And so a 13-year-old student was forced to strip to her bra and underpants so that female officials could search her for drugs. Um, and the court ruled that a school went too far in that case that no child should be forced to strip um, for school officials, especially for drugs. Like, if it's there, it, they're not going to stop. 
in 2013, Ginsburg dissented with Shelby, dissented in Shelby County versus Holder, um, in which the court held unconstitutional the part of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 requiring federal preclearance before changing voting practices. So federal preclearance means that if a state, certain states, wanted to change their voting laws, they had to get federal approval. And so the reason it was only certain states is because some states are a little more blatantly racist than other states. And so like other states will try and hide it and be like, we're not being racist. It just looks kind of racist what we're doing. And some states were just like, we're racist, get over it. And so the federal government was like, hey, if you want to redistrict your districts, if you want to change your voting ID laws, talk to us first, because sometimes you do dumb shit. And so states were upset about this, and it was called federal preclearance. Um, Alabama was one of these states. <laughs> so Ginsburg wrote, throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the idea is, the main thing was discriminatory practices aren't being held anymore, and so we don't need this. Um, which the only reason discriminatory practices weren't happening is because of federal preclearance. So Alabama couldn't just say, oh, Black people can't vote here. They had to go through federal oversight and say, hey, can we make this polling place like white people only and they were like no <laughs> you can't and they'd be like can we close all the polling districts in majority black neighborhoods and they're like no no <laughs> you can't nice and try though Alabama was like look we're letting african-americans vote and we're not closing polling places in african-american majority neighborhoods and they're like but you tried <laughs> Which, these weren't all real cases, that was just a quick example. Usually they were a lot more complex than just saying, you know, certain demographics couldn't vote. Mm -hmm. um, so that is a huge one that definitely still impacts us today and is also very important with an election coming up and Pennsylvania just deciding a court case on ballots. Just so you know, Pennsylvania wasn't a state that was, like, known for racist voting practices, though they did have them. Yes. Um, based on everything we've already spoken about, it's pretty clear that RBG was iconic, but there's still so much for us to talk about when it comes to her as an icon for all women. So one thing she did was she was able to administer Vice President Al Gore's oath of office at his, his request. Um, Ginsburg is believed to have been the first Supreme Court justice to officiate at a same-sex wedding, performing the August 31st, 2013 ceremony of Kennedy Senator um, President Michael Kaiser and John Roberts, who was a government economist. Um, earlier that summer, the court had bolstered same-sex marriage rights in two separate cases, and she believed the issue being settled led same-sex couples to ask her to officiate as there was no longer the fear of compromising rulings on the issue, which I think is really cool that she was able to do something like that that she believed in. Um, Ginsburg has been referred to as a pop culture icon, which 
I agree with very much so. Um, her profile began to rise after O'Connor's retirement in 2006, leaving her as the only serving female justice. Um, it's at this point that I also just want to mention something that I think is pretty iconic, which is um, the dissenting callers. Um, Taylor and I were talking about this prior to the start of the episode. So um, as Taylor already mentioned, what dissent means, you know, for whenever a court case is going to be, um, like the results will be announced and they do not agree with the decision. Um, well, one thing that uh, whenever she was appointed to the Supreme Court, she felt that um, women's appearances were not, she felt that the robes were not made for women in mind. Men typically have their um, collared shirt that folds over their robes. Women had no such thing. So she decided to work with um, O'Connor to uh, pick a way for them to express their femininity, but also show their feelings as so with their dissenting feelings. Um, so they would have these usually lace detailed collars to go over um, their robes that could show their personality, but also their feelings, which I thought was really cool. And the big thing with that is the Supreme Court takes a picture after every decision of the justices who sat on that decision. And so Justice Ginsburg's dissent collar became very iconic because she would be sitting there with this collar and everyone would know. Yeah. <laughs> well, and she especially had ones for very dissenting opinions. Like she has a metal one that was like, she had a metal one that was like somewhat golden color. There's a video of her showing like her, her, uh, I don't know what I want to call it, like her closet of collars. It's a really cute video if you want to look it on, look it up on YouTube. Um, but one of them is like a golden one. Um, another thing, as we already talked about, was her dissents. They were well known because they were usually very fiery. Um, uh, particularly one case, um, Shelby Con County versus Holder led to the creation of the Notorious RBG, um, which became an internet meme on Tumblr comparing her to the rapper The Notorious B.I.G. Um, and the creator of the blog, who was a law student, Shanna Kaczynski, Kaczynik, Kaczynik. Yeah, I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna be able to pronounce that right. So, Shanna, if you're listening, sorry. sorry. <laughs> My B. Um, but anyhow, this student teamed up with an MSNNBC reporter, um, Erin, Iron, Iron Carmen, Iron Carmen. Wow, everyone has bad names. Sorry, your names are great. I'm just bad. To turn the blog into a book titled Notorious RBG, The Life and Times of Ruth Bader Ginsburg very good. Um, that book was released in October 2015. It became a New York Times bestseller because who wouldn't want a book about RBG? Um, and she actually, Ginsburg, admitted to having a large supply of um, notorious RBG t-shirts, which she distributed as gifts frequently, which I think is, like, such a humble brag. Like, hey, happy birthday. Here's my face on a shirt. I don't even think it's a humble brag. I think it's just a boss move. Oh, no, it very much is. Just to be like, happy birthday. Here is my face on a shirt. Enjoy. <laughs> um, and something else, like we already talked about, was her and Scalia's lovely relationship. So Scalia and Ginsburg were really funny together because they were very opposing in most uh, decisions. They were very different politically. However, 
they were very inspirational, I would say, in the fact that their relationship was so civil outside of the courtroom, which I think is a really great example of how we should be as Americans today, despite our differences, we should be able to be civil. Mm -hmm. um, and in 2015, they actually, um, known for their shared love of opera, were fictionalized in Scalia v. Ginberg, an opera by Derek Wang, um, which is really funny. I think because they have so much, they've said so many things about each other. Like I know in an interview once they asked Scalia, who would you want to go out to dinner with? And they said two other members of the Supreme court who were male justices, like that were similar in relation to them. And he didn't say either of them. He's, he specifically, even though she wasn't an option said RBG. <laughs> um, so I think that was just really cool. Uh, since 2015, Kate McKinnon, who, um, works for Saturday Night Live has portrayed Ginsburg. Um, it's hilarious if you ever want, if you ever feel sad, like whenever I first learned that she passed, which Taylor was the one who announced to me that she had passed through text, I started re-watching all of the SNL skits of Kate McKinnon being Ginsburg and talking with, um, oh, what's the name of the guy she's usually with on the white guy? I don't know their oh I can't think of his name I'm sorry but the white guy who's usually like doing like a report like a news report and he'll she'll come oh. in and she'll be like Co Colin Colin I think his name's Colin but right. yeah um McKinnon has repeatedly reprised the role including during a weekend update sketch that aired from the 2016 um RNC in Cleveland um, the segments typically feature McKinnon as Ginsburg lobbying insults. She calls Ginsburg and doing a celebratory dance. Um, they also did an episode where they had a Ginsburg rap, which was really funny. Um, and usually most of the comedy is centered around the fact that she is older, very tiny, very tiny woman, but has a lot of spunk, which I think is a great way of portraying her, but never having to like make a statement about her political views for anyone to be able to say anything bad about her absolutely you have to go look up saturday night live ginsburg you have to they're great skits but going back to how we found out we were actually recording um who did we do last week uh we did the league of women's voters yes and we were yes <laughs> We were recording, and I got out of recording, and, like, my phone had, like, 20 notifications about it, and I was like, oh, my God, tonight's terrible. Well, and it's surprising, because I had no notifications until you messaged me, so my phone didn't send me the news report until after you, so you're, like, on the ball. Um, I don't know if I'm on the ball or if I'm just kind of creepy. I do have her name saved on a Google search, so, like, whenever she... Make, made a big dissent or um, was a part of a big opinion, I would get like a Google alert and it was just like, check out this Google search with Ruth oh, Bader Ginsburg. That's cool. I, um, I also, yeah, you can like tag different names. I have my name tagged in case there's a new pop-up with Taylor Boyle in it. I just like to know. Um, but I also have, it's called SCOTUS blog. I use it for my law classes and it's um, run by like people who follow the Supreme Court. And so that was the one that came through first. But in 2002, she was inducted into the Ni um, National Women's Hall of Fame, which is well-deserved. 
She was named one of the 100 most powerful women in 2009, one of Glamour Magazine's Women of the Year in 2012, and one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in 2015. In 2019, which I found this to be a very funny thing, Samuel Adams, which is a beer company, if you do not know, um, released a limited edition beer called When There Were Nine, which for those of you that don't know, um, Ginsburg well-knownly replied to a question about um, when would there be enough women on the Supreme Court as when there are nine, which is a full Supreme Court. Um, and so I think there's just so much, and I know there's many things we've missed, but she was just so iconic for so many reasons. And it's really important to remember to keep, um, keep looking at everything she did for women and for just America as general, in general, you know, even though she's now passed. She also leaves behind a pretty huge legacy on top of all of the Supreme Court cases, all of the general cases, um, and just the impact she had on people's lives. Um, so she is only, she is only the second Supreme Court justice to lie in state. Um, lying in state is where they take you to the Capitol building and your body just sits there. <laughs> Forever? Um, no, no. It's, it's so people can pay respect, like okay. when... So obviously a lot of people felt a connection to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so she lay, laid, lied in repos at the Supreme Court so people could stop by the Supreme Court and pay their respects and was then moved to the Capitol building so that um, Congress members could pay their respects there. And her ceremony was held there, a ceremony. Um, she is the first woman to lie in state and she's also the first person the first jewish person to lie in state so those are both huge um obviously it's huge for her because she held a lot of firsts in her life it's also huge to think that it's literally 2020 and she's the first woman to lie in state yeah um what gives you the qualification like how do they typically like what types of people do they look all is it always people in politics that lie in state um, yeah, typically. Like, if Kim Kardashian died, she wouldn't lie in state. Right. She might lie, like, somewhere in Hollywood. Like, Hollywood might have a thing for that, where, like, people can come and pay respects. I don't know. Um, it's typically politicians or people who were, like, quasi-politicians. Um, usually presidents lie in state, if they were, like, well-liked. <laughs> um... Most, most presidents lie, most current presidents lie in state. So within our lifetime, presidents who have died will lie in state. Um, it wasn't really a thing early, early on. Also, like, bodies didn't last as long as they can now early, early on, you know? Um, I think Stalin, I think it's Stalin's whose body is still just, like, chilling somewhere in Russia. And, like, you can go look at it crazy yo i think it is i think it's i mean I know, I know the czars they have like a temple where they're like they're not buried above ground but their caskets are like well i guess it is buried above ground because they have like little mini like thingies that they lay in but it's all out and available basically 
Yeah, I think Stalin is just like in a glass case. People are like, ooh, look, there's Stalin. Um, <laughs> lying in state is a little more reformed than that. Yeah. Refined than that. Um, but it is just so people can pay their respects. Um, so this is big for her to lie in state. Ginsburg's first book, My Own Words, published by Simon & Schuster, was released October 4th, 2016, which means there's still time for you to order a fourth anniversary edition. There's not a fourth anniversary edition, but you could order it and read it in time for the fourth anniversary and it would make it a fourth anniversary edition. True that. So while promoting her book in October 2016, during an interview with Katie Couric, Ginsburg responded to a question about Colin Kaepernick choosing not to stand for the national anthem at sporting events by calling the protest really dumb. Um, I don't say this to criticize Ginsburg or to make her seem like a bad person. I just think it's important that people recognize faults. And Ginsburg did an incredible job recognizing her faults. She later apologized for her criticism, calling her earlier comments inappropriately dismissive and harsh, and noting that she hadn't really been familiar with the incident and should have declined to respond to the question rather than respond with what little information she had. Um, and I think that's a really big thing. Um, we've talked a little bit about cancel culture on here. Um, obviously, not everyone deserves a platform. I completely agree with that. I myself, um, though I, I call her an icon, um, I would never put her on a pedestal. She is a human. She's allowed to make mistakes. Um, and I think really the biggest thing is that as long as someone is willing to say that was coming from a place of poor information or I was just a garbage human then, which sometimes people are garbage humans and then become good humans. Um, I think that's really big and I think it was big that she not only noted that she was wrong but apologized for the criticism. In 2018, Ginsburg expressed her support for the Me Too movement, which encourages women to speak up about their experiences with sexual harassment. Um, she told an audience, it's about time for so long women were silent, thinking there was nothing you could do about it, but now the law is on the side of women or men who encounter harassment, and that's a good thing. She also reflected on her own experiences with gender di discrimination and sexual harassment. Um, like we said women were often denied jobs for pregnancies. Um, she struggled to find a job in law, in um, like in a law firm. And she was once propositioned by a chemistry professor at Cornell University um, when he unsuccessfully attempted to trade her exam answers for sex. Um, so I don't know where I was going with that. I'll edit that out. <laughs> well, you just want to say, because I didn't know that, like, it must be, like, for you to be such a trash human to treat another person like that, but then one day to realize, wow, I tried to do that up to RBG. Like, that's even, like, another layer of you fucked up, basically, you know, like, I just also want to know if he was still alive and just, like, turned on the TV one day and realized, like, the notorious RBG was calling his ass out. Yeah. On, <laughs> on every platform, because everything she said was always reported on. Oh, yeah. Like, anytime she gave, like, an official quote like that, it was always a huge deal. Yeah. I just wonder if he was like, bye, I really fucked up there. 
that was pat on my part. Um, this is, I consider it part of her legacy. I also just consider it a really fun fact. So researchers at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History gave a species of praying mantis the name, oh my gosh, I think it's Lomontis Ginsbergae. Ginsbergai? I don't really know. Ginsbergay sounds right. Also, you said that with such confidence that I believe it to be correct, so. <laughs> confidence is like 90% of the battle. If you can say something incredibly confident, people will just believe it. Um, not saying you should just lie to people, but like every now and then people will be like, oh, you knew that. And I was like, no, I, I was guessing that. <laughs> and they're like, oh. Um, this species was named after Justice Ginsburg. So there were a couple reasons this was. So the name was given because the neck plate of this specific species of praying mantis bears a resemblance to a jabot, which Ginsburg was known for wearing. Um, so, so like <laughs> back to descent collars and femininity. Um, Moreover, this new species was identified based on the female insect's genitalia. I don't know what they look like. I don't know how you find an insect's genitalia, but shout out to the people at Cleveland Museum of Natural History who did. Um, rather than based on the male species. And so this was typically kind of unusual. You typically go off the male species. Um, and the researchers noted that the name was a nod to Ginsburg's fight for gender equality because this mantis was identified by the female genitalia. Um, filmmakers Betsy West and Julie Cohen created a documentary about Ginsburg titled RBG for CNN Films, which premiered at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival. Finding that fact was wild to me because I felt like RBG, RBG had been out for years. It actually came out the same year as another film, On the Basis of Sex, which focused on Ginsburg's career struggles fighting for equal rights. Um, it's, its screenplay was named the Blacklist of Best Unproduced Screenplays of 2014. So the screenplay was written in 2014, wasn't produced until 2018. Um, Ginsburg herself has a cameo in the film. So um at the end of the film the actress who portrays Ginsburg is walking up the Supreme Court steps and by the time she gets to the top of it it is um Justice Ginsburg walking and so that was her cameo um still in the idea of film and pop culture the seventh season of the sitcom New Girl features a three-year-old character named Ruth Bader Schmidt and it's said that she was named after Ginsburg um, final film we're going to discuss is the Lego Movie 2. You may be wondering what that has to do with Justice Ginsburg. Um, there is a Lego minifigure of Ginsburg in the film. Ginsburg gave her blessing for this minifigure. She also gave her blessing to have the minifigure produced as part of the Lego toy sets following the film's release in February 2019. So you can find a Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Lego minifigure, if that is your thing. Yeah. Or some people collect bugs, you could find a Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg praying mantis and keep it forever. But I, <laughs> I like that idea. So now that we've gone through the wonderful, amazing, 
full of oh my full of just everything life of rbg we have now come to our discussion question section so our first discussion question which of the cases discussed today do you think is the most influential so i'm going to say the most influential was read versus read um that's the one that established equal protections clause to women um there are a couple reasons I feel this way. One, like I said, I think it would have been really hard to get the additional legislation passed without having that one passed or the additional rulings affirmed without having that one affirmed. Um, I also just think it's a big deal to, for once, say our constitution does actually apply to women. Mm -hmm. That rarely was outright said, and so I think that's a big deal to hear that. I was also looking at that one, which makes me feel like a um, major copycat to you, but that was what I was also going towards. Um, I think a case that's notably very important that was dissented on until it actually came to fruition during Obama's administration was the Lilly Ledbetter Act, um, because women having that security and knowing that their work is seen as equal to a man's um, is just really important and helps to make you know a place in society for women to feel equal in many places of society anywhere where there is work so question number two if you could say anything to rbg what would it be if i had the opportunity to say something to her it would be i want to say just like thank you but like i feel like that's very basic but that would be what I want to say. I'd want to say thank you. Like, it couldn't have been easy to be the first, you know, the first. Yeah. And also the most notable to go through all this stuff. Um, I don't think it's easy for women at all to be in politics, um, especially on the national level. And I, I couldn't do it. There would be no way I could deal with the, the pressure, the limelight understanding that what you think is going to very much influence history so I would just say thank you and thank her for her courage for being confident and comfortable enough to do what was necessary to improve the lives of many I would likely say I'm sorry I'm sorry she had to work until she was 87 years old I'm sorry she didn't feel confident in women's rights in her ability to leave the supreme court um Obviously, I'm incredibly thankful for everything she's fought for, but I also am just sad that she really did work until her dying breath. I mean, obviously, the Supreme Court's not a labor-intensive job. She's not working in a mill, but she truly did work until her death, and I think that's sad. Um, I'm also sorry that her death has sort of been overshadowed in the media lately. I think more respect should be paid. I'm not saying people aren't paying respects. I just feel like um, every conversation about her is overshadowed by what the election's going to look like, who's replacing her, um, all of these things. And I'm sorry for that because I think the conversation should just be Ruth Bader Ginsburg was an icon, a legend, she broke barriers that some people didn't even know existed. And so 
I'm also sorry she had to break those barriers. I wish she could have gotten in at a firm right out of college. Just like her husband did. Um, So yeah, I think I would just say I'm sorry. And finally, should Supreme Court justices serve a lifetime appointment? My feeling is you don't want legacy rulings. So, and what we mean by that is, even though Ruth Bader Ginsburg was iconic, she was very with it, she continually tried to enforce what was needed to improve the lives of women and people that were minorities, she grew up in a very different time. And it's not right once you reach a certain age for people to be ruling on cases that they don't socially understand. And that's not a, that's not a me trying to say anything bad about her. That's just a obstacle that no one can control. You know, there's no way to be better at it. It's not that she didn't work hard to be the best that she could. It's just that that's something that you can't control. You can't be able to fully understand something that you haven't been able to go through. And so that's why, like, I think I look forward very much to people going into politics now and younger people trying to get into politics because I think that's a big issue we have in our country is just that we have a lot of older people trying to make the world the way they think it should be. And there's a lot of younger people who are very tired of it and they just really have a different view of how things should be. And that's why I don't think people should serve a lifetime appointment because at some point your beliefs aren't going to line up with the current beliefs of the people that you're trying to serve. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. I also think you get older, your health gets hard. How are you going to be able to do anything? Yes. I'm sorry she worked until she was 87. I don't think she should have worked until she was 87. You know, and we're just talking about RBG. Lots of justices have done this. You start to miss things because you're attending to your health, which is the top priority. She absolutely should have missed things to make sure her cancer was in check and to get her physical checkups and all of those things. Well, and also, too, it's important to note, stress is bad for your health. It's bad when you have any kind of health issue. So not only is it bad because she was missing things that they, like, missing things at work, possibly, but it may have even shortened her life. And I think, my thing is, I don't think any political position should be a lifetime appointment. You are to represent the public, and the public is constantly changing. And so, obviously, this year is a little different because three Supreme Court justices have been appointed in the last four years. But there have been times where there haven't been appointments for years and years. And so, what was progressive when they were appointed may not be progressive anymore. and may not be in the best interest of everyone. However, Um, I think it's important to note with that the people that have been appointed in the last four years, the youngest person is still, I think, Kavanaugh's 56. I think. He's 50s. I know he's mid-50s. Yeah, so it's still not, 
we can have a president at the age of 35. I don't believe there's an age requirement on Supreme Court justices. Quite frankly, there's not even a rule that says, like, they have to have a law degree. They just typically all do. (laughs) It's just, like, an understood thing. Um, So there's no reason we couldn't have a younger Supreme Court justice appointed. Now, the issue with that now is we currently have lifetime appointments. And so if you're put on the Supreme Court at 24 years old, no, that wouldn't work. At 26 years old, I thought I did the math in my head and I forgot that I'm actually 22, not 20. (laughs) Um, So if you're put on at 26 years old, you're on there forever. (laughs) So that is a reason they're appointed at an older age, but I think a huge fear people have and why lifetime appointments are seen as great is you don't want the new president to take over and dismiss the entire Supreme Court. Right. You also don't want the Supreme Court to make decisions on rulings based off of a re-election campaign. Right. Um, I think that's what 12 years, I feel like 12 years or 13 years would be like a good fit because then it would be through multiple you know what I mean? Like, it, but obviously not everybody, like, it wouldn't be 12 years and a whole new set come through, but, like, 12 years from your appointment date. Right. So it would be, like, every 12, it would be probably every three to four years you would have a new Supreme Court justice, ideally, you know, but for every person who is on there would have to serve 12, which would be three term, three presidential terms. The other thing um, I do kind of like the Senate appointment process. Um, I'm not opposed to the people just electing a Supreme Court justice, but I think what should happen is it should come up, I believe they're called referendum votes, but I could be wrong. And so how it would come up if Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still on the court and this was her 12th year, and that's the term limit we discussed. After 12 years, she comes up on the ballot and it says, do you think Ruth Bader Ginsburg should continue to serve on the Supreme Court? And if the majority say yes, there's not even an election held. She gets another 12 years. If the majority of people say no, there is an election held. Ruth Bader Ginsburg could run in this election. But so could Caitlin, and so could Trezuzio and Dante Engelman, and it would be a general election. Um, the other thing is I don't think Supreme, my only thing with that is I don't think Supreme Court justices should run on party tickets. I think they should have a nonpartisan ticket. Yeah, I agree. Um, and so that has been discussed. There has been some discussion. Um, typically, the time frames I hear most often are 10 or 18 years. Um, and now obviously that's not a set term limit if you consistently get yes majorities, Mm -hmm. but I do think. Even with yes majorities, even with yes majorities, I still think there should be a cap. Yeah, like you serve three terms or you serve until you're 65 or. And working enjoy your retirement age. And I think that, like, 
RBG is not the only one who has done that. I just want to point out she's not like some big bad person for abusing the Supreme Court system. Um, lots of justices work until they die. They die in the scene. Mm -hmm. um, I just don't think that should happen. Like you wouldn't want a professor to die working as a professor. Right. Like obviously tragedies happen, but you wouldn't want your high school history teacher to be 93 years old. Like, you, you just wouldn't. I wouldn't. <laughs> like, and like Caitlin said, you miss, you know, RBG admitted she wasn't familiar with Colin Kaepernick's protests. And I feel like in 2016, that was like a huge discussion to miss out on. Mm -hmm. And so I do think you do, I don't want to say insensitive, become insensitive to the issues, but like almost, almost aloof. Like you aren't, you're on the Supreme Court, you're RBG, you know, you're not well, worried about like, Colin Kaepernick. I feel like similar issues come up whenever there is any discussion about privacy within the media and privacy within social media and the internet is that the older you are typically just because of the fact that like our generation, we've gone through like 13 years of computer classes typically um so we're pretty familiar with the, how the internet works and everything so it's not very hard for us to understand where they're coming from when they're explaining like privacy things whereas if you don't have a good grasp on the internet it's going to be really hard to explain that to you but as you guys can see this has been the great life of rbg I'm not sad we did this episode, quite frankly. I've been planning to do this episode. Um, so minor spoiler, we are going to dress up as our characters for the Halloween episode. And I was gonna do Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but I decided um, because we'll be discussing two women that episode, I didn't want to um, because I wanted to dedicate a whole episode to her. I'm just sad we had to do it like this. Yeah. I wanted her to still be chilling in DC when we did our episode. Yeah, I agree. But since we've spent two and a half hours uh, talking about RBG and you guys are probably tired, we will sign off here. Next week we promise to talk about Phyllis Schlafly and what a woman she was. <laughs> What odd, like, what a transition from RBG to Phyllis Schlafly. Two women, both with law degrees, both very invested in women's place in society. Both but very... next What? Tune in next week to see how they differ. Yeah, it's pretty stark, so make sure you tune in. Okay, I'll pause it. I'll this has been Wednesday's Women, sponsored by the Clarion University CU Engaged Coalition. The thoughts and ideas presented in this podcast are meant to be for entertainment purposes first and foremost, and we do not claim to be experts in any field. As always, thanks for listening, and make sure you go out and register to vote.